Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hello everyone and welcome to Bouncing Back, the personal resilience science insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I am your host, Joanna. Let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Bouncing Back, where we talk all things personal resilience. I'm your host, Joanna, and today we're going to be talking about embodied self-awareness therapy and how a body-mind connection can help us build our resilience. Now, when I first stumbled across this, I had no idea that this form of therapy even existed, but I'm so lucky to be joined by Alan Fogel, who will help us unpack today's topic further. Alan is a professor of psychology emeritus at the University of Utah. He's an author and is currently focusing on embodied self-awareness in his research. He has also been an active contributor to research on social and emotional development for the past 33 years. I could go on, but I'll let Alan do that for himself. Hi, Alan. How are you today? I'm good. Thanks. Thanks That's for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on the show. Um, before we get into it, would you like to tell us a bit more about yourself and what it is you do? Well, my um, clinical practice or therapy practice is something called Rosenmepo. And unfortunately, it's not very well known. It's primarily, I think, the most practitioners distributed around the world are in Europe. Okay. I'm not even in the U.S. where I live. And I don't even know if there's anybody in Australia. <clears throat> no, but it, it has some similarities to to other forms of embodied self-awareness therapy. The basic idea behind these approaches is that we get at um, we get at resilience or helping people build resilience by accessing our felt experience, our embodied experience, instead of um, trying to think about them. Amazing. Well, I'm really excited to get into it a bit more. But before we do that, um, we'll just jump into a section we like to call Have You Met Alan? So we'll just get um, ask you some get to know you questions. So my first one for you is, do you have a favorite book or one that you would recommend? Well, I saw that you were going to ask me that question. And I started thinking about it. And I don't know, maybe this is a little self-serving, but I actually really love the last book that I wrote, which is called um, Restorative Embodiment and Resilience. Restorative Embodiment and Resilience. And there's another book on related theme that I really like called Your Body is Your Brain. It's by Amanda Blake. And the title sounds a little strange at first, Your Body is Your Brain. But what she's trying to say is that the, the um, brain, so to speak, is distributed throughout our whole bodies so that 
<clears throat> every part of our body is connected to the brain, and therefore every part of the brain is connected to every part of the body. So um, it, it's just another perspective on <clears throat> the way our nervous system works, and that it's distributed across everything, every part of ourselves, internal organs, our skin, our muscles. So, and oddly enough, it you know, the body affects the things that we think and the things that we feel and vice versa. The things that we think or the way in which we think can also affect what happens in our body. So it's as if there's really no body-mind separation. They're just all one thing. So Amazing. Those two books kind of talk about that connection. Yeah, great. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. And do you have a movie that you like, or are you into movies at all? Yeah, I am into movies, uh, and I I'm particularly charmed by a recent. Um, I don't know if you follow any of the K dramas in Korea, but oh. they're mini. They're they're not. They're like really long movies. They're like mini series. Anyway, I just saw one recently called Chocolate. And if any of our, your viewers get to see that, I highly recommend it. And the reason I liked it, I mean, it has the usual, you know, kind of melodramatic elements that a lot of Korean dramas tend to have. But it deals very openly and very frankly with um, the long-term effects of childhood trauma. So of the kind of lead female character and the lead male character eventually become romantically connected. Um, they both lost their mothers and lost their families, but in different ways. And that theme runs throughout, and it's, it's very frankly and openly dealt with, which I find very unusual, um, the way that it's dealt with. It's almost as if where we get to really see inside these people into their felt experience. Um, I know in melodramas there's often a lot of crying, for example, but the crying in this one felt really different to me. It felt like real emotion, like the kind of emotion we have when we, um, and this comes back to the theme of embodied self-awareness, when we really kind of something really connects inside of us and there's a truth about something about ourselves that we learn that we hear that we discover when we pay attention that just kind of opens us up and brings us the tears and brings us a sense of relief and healing um so i that's i, I think that comes the closest to a recent film i've seen yeah, amazing. I've never watched a K-drama before, but that sounds really deep, actually. So, yeah. And how long is that? You said it's like a mini-series? Well, there's 16 episodes, and they're each about an hour long. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah, I should give that a go, but it's definitely related today's, to today's topic, so it's great that yeah. you mentioned that one. I know, that's what I thought, how I felt about it. Yeah, awesome. Well, moving on, my next question for you is, do you listen to podcasts? I don't, actually. I'm not much of a 
I guess because I'm just an old guy or something, <laughs> my chin for things like that. That's okay. Podcasts aren't for everyone. I only recently got into them myself. So nah. that is all good. Um, and our next one for you is, do you have a famous role model or even just anyone in your life that you find inspirational? Well, you know, I've had many, many role models over my lifetime and they've all been um, mentors and guides to me in different phases of my life. And, I, I, you know, none of them are famous. You wouldn't know any of their names. But <clears throat> I do really feel that role models are essential to our growth and our development. Um, uh, partly because of what they teach us, but also the way they, they pay attention to us, the way they um, really see us and see what we need what we're missing, maybe, but they can find a way to tell us that in a way that's um, caring and supportive. Um, yeah. The other thing I, I'm beginning to realize is that, you know, at this point in my life, I'm almost 78. <clears throat> I'm an elder now, and I've become a role model for many people, which actually feels wonderful. And I kind of see both sides now of that, relation, that kind of relationship. Yeah, that's beautiful. I feel like role models are so essential in our lives and they're really people we look up to. And honestly, a lot of my role models aren't even famous people, but people I've stumbled ac across in my life, like my family, um, like mentors over the years. So you definitely have quite a few role models throughout your life. But thank yeah. you for sharing that with us. And lastly, I'd like to ask if you have a course that you've completed that's been influential for you? Well, you know, uh, earlier in my career, I was very scientifically oriented. And I have a doctorate in um, psychology. And I studied human development for many years as a research scientist. Um, and I didn't, I wasn't really attracted to doing any kind of therapy at that time. But as I got older and toward the end of my academic career and research career, I discovered this version method that I was telling you about earlier. And that thing that just shifted everything for me, it reached me um, in, a, in such a deep way that, um, I, I mean, I, I've had many courses of psychotherapy to get over some of my own childhood issues and traumas, um, but nothing really reached me in quite that way as Rosemary. And I think it's because it was speaking through my body and not through part of me that I've always, you know, most of my life have relied on, which is my intelligence. Yeah. They kind of bypassed that. And so, um, I went, I decided to go through the training process to become a practitioner. And then um, after I did that, I, w I went through another training process to become a teacher. So it's like, that's, I consider that my profession now more than anything else. Yeah, amazing. And how did you find going through all of that and realizing that that's what you wanted to do? Well, I know a lot of people who are into um, 
various branches of Buddhism. Um, and they speak about they speak about it in very similar ways. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and at least from what I've heard from them, what I've read about it, is that it's um, Buddhist practice is something that's a lifelong practice. That is, we don't just sit down to start to meditate as a novice and become enlightened. That's not possible. It actually takes many, many years of going deeper and deeper and uncovering more layers. And I find that Rosen is a similar kind of life-engaging, life-enriching, and lifelong process of inner development. And, you know, I've been doing it for 25 years now, and I still feel like I'm just <laughs> scratching the surface in some ways. Even though, even though I'm, you know, I'm quite good at it, and I'm also good at teaching it, I always learn something every time I give a session or teach a class. There's something that opens up in me, and I love that. I love that feeling of um, continuing to grow, even, even, um, you know, at my age. Like I, I definitely don't feel feeling like I know it all. Or, I figured it all out. In fact, just the opposite. That I feel like the older I get, the less I know. In some ways, you know, the more surprised I am at the wonders of the world or the depth of human experience. Yeah, beautiful. I feel like there's always something to learn, and that's really great that you're still having those experiences. And I hope we get to unpack Rosen a bit more as we get into um, today's episode. But I'd love to jump into our interview questions now. So my first question for you is, why is resilience important in our life? Um, well, resilience is about fundamentally about um, recovery. It's about, and specifically, recovery from stress. So, um, it's not so much like a trait or a quality. Like, like I wouldn't say that a particular person is resilient. Um, what I would be more interested in is looking at their capacity for recovery. So, um, let me give a simple example that probably most people can relate to. So, athletes, for example, they put their body under um, big stressors. You know, they, the way they move, the way they train, um, they sometimes get injuries. So, they really have to take the time to, you know, put ice packs on, to get massages, to get physical therapy, to um, take rest periods. All of those things are essential, like for an athlete's recovery, so that they can be better, um, and that builds their ability to be ready for the next competition or the next event. So, so it's really about um, Resilience is really about, do I have the tools to, do I have the support I need and the tools I need 
to recover from the stresses I'm putting myself under, whatever those stressors are. It's not about, um, hey, I'm resilient. I can kind of go through anything and walk out unscathed. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah, so it's not about being immune to like adversity or stresses in your life, but more how you work through those. Yes, exactly. Both. Yeah. Amazing. And my next question for you is, what is embodied self-awareness therapy? Well, embodied self-awareness is a term that I invented um, in a previous book um, before this um, restorative embodied uh, embodiment book that I told you about earlier. I wrote a book called Body Sense, where I described what embodied self-awareness is. And it's basically about <clears throat> sensing the inner condition of our bodies. I'm, I'm just going to say that again, sensing the inner condition of our bodies. So we have these, um, what's called exteroception. And there are sight, hearing, touch, um, taste, smell. That's sensing the outer world. But we also have actually many, many more ways to sense the inner condition of our body. So let me just give you some examples of what that might mean. It might mean that um, it might mean something um, sensory or physical, like feeling hot or cold, or body, body tired or um, energetic. You know, basic kind of feelings like that. It can mean feeling our heart racing or our breathing um, under different conditions. Um, it could also be mean feeling our movement. Like when we move in certain ways, um, we, in, in order to execute those movements without hurting ourselves, we have to feel them. We have to feel all those muscles and the way they connect to different self like in my arm and it connects to my shoulder. And all of those are inner conditions, senses. And the last um, sense, which in many ways therapeutically is the most important, is emotion. So emotion is also part of the inner condition of our body. So emotions are like happiness, sadness, anger, um, peacefulness, um, irritability, shame. Um, I'm sure you can think of many more kinds of emotions. Yeah. And what I find is that the people I work with have found ways to survive where <clears throat> we hide emotions from ourselves. We don't let ourselves feel um, what we're really feeling. We tell ourselves that we think we're feeling certain things or that we should be feeling certain things. But in fact, when we really kind of go inside without thought, we may discover that it's really completely different. Yeah. And why do people go through life or go through experiences wanting to hide their emotions? Partly, I think it's cultural. Um, and, you know, I think 
in westernized culture around the world where we have formal education systems and we're learning from a very young age how to write and to read and to speak and to think and to solve problems by, you know, learning math and et cetera, et cetera. And it becomes, um, that becomes like the primary tool we use to solve our problem. No, true. Not just like it could be a problem at work, you know, how to work through a particular issue, or it could be a personal problem. Like you might be having a relationship problem and you try to think it through. You try to, well, well what can I do? What can I say? What, you know, I'm well with both here. Or what don't I like? Or what do I like? But we're, we're doing that as a thought process. And that's so habitual that we don't even realize that we're doing it because that's just like in the air, so to speak. It's in the culture. Um, that's really different than stopping all those thoughts and settling into ourselves and just letting the feelings that are really there like in our heart and in the bellies, um, just start to come up. And um, I have to say that um, that's exceptionally difficult to do. Mm -hmm. It's exceptionally difficult to kind of step off the very steady platform thinking that we can think our way through problems. Yeah. Um, into um, the, the world of inner sensation and especially emotion, which is totally beyond, beyond the realm of thought. Something that's surprising every time. Ali, um, I, I think for the most part, if you don't have experience doing that, you need some kind of a guide. You need some sort of a um, support to help you stay in that. So would you say that embodied self-awareness therapy is a lot about being in touch with your body? Yeah, not so much your body, you know, as an object, but it's about the way we experience our bodies, our our healing of the inner condition is the part of our bodies. Okay, so, yeah. Um, and would you say that, like, the thinking pro process, like, we were talking before and you mentioned that it's a lot easier for people to think their way through things. Do you think that's a much easier process than being sort of in touch with, you know, the embodied self-awareness? process? Yes. Um, especially for people who are raised in westernized cultures with um, <clears throat> life histories of formal education, which involve thinking and studying and solving problems. So um, that's what we're used to doing. But when it comes to getting in touch with, you know, I guess we could say metaphorically what the heart knows. 
for what they got now. That um, that doesn't come as easy for people. I mean, I think there are cert certain people who can do that more spontaneously, but whenever we have experienced some kind of life trauma, that could be like a serious trauma, like childhood abuse or neglect or emotional neglect, or it could have been a surgery or um, <clears throat> assault or automobile accident. Those are kind of pain trauma. But there are, you know, everybody's like a sudden kind of trauma in it. You know, like we overwork ourselves. We push ourselves. These can be these things. Or we don't take time for recovery, as I've been explaining before. These things compromise our resilience, and they also compromise our ability to feel ourselves. And there's um, the reason that happens is that our we have a part of our nervous system that's self-protective. So whenever we feel stressed or we're being hurt or challenged, um, you, we go into a kind of um, survival mode where we're we get, we fall back on what we know, which is thinking our way through things. Mm -hmm. um, or um, if it's a really serious challenge um, or a really serious, more serious trauma, we might want to try to get away from it um, um, or not deal with it. And that's pretty much how a lot of people approach their inner selves and their emotional self. Is there, this not something I want to I don't want to go there. I don't want to yeah. really feel how angry I am. I want to, it's a lot easier for me to yell at somebody and take it out on somebody else than it is to just let myself feel what anger really feels like. The burning, the pain, uh, you know, the tightness, and not do anything about it. That's what um, embodied self-awareness is really about. So we tend to externalize, um, like attacking others, or blaming others, rather than um, settling into ourselves and really getting in touch with people with feeling. I think that's just really hard almost everyone yeah for sure and I feel like personally sometimes I know that I'd rather think through things than you know go through a process of being more in touch with myself because it feels easier than having to feel all the emotions so what would you say happens if someone decides to you know continue to push away those emotions what happens over time well that's um you know, that's when we start to lose our resilience in response to stressors or crowns. So we just keep pushing things away and pushing things away. And um, what happens is internally in our bodies, that builds up um, hormones like cortisol, for example, or um, hormones that come come in when we're responding to a stressor, 
And cortisol is a really good thing in the short term. It's like a blood sugar and it gives us energy like to get through challenges. Like um, we talked about being an athlete um, or um, trying to think through problems. But if we're doing that all the time, our system gets flooded with cortisol in our bloodstream. And cortisol is a neurotransmitter as well as providing energy to respond to stress, which means that it goes to parts of our brain that keep telling us we are under threat, that we are we have to protect ourselves. And that um, that develops pathways in the nervous system where we're just always on edge. We're always and we're always avoiding what we really feel. So in a way, it becomes habitual. Um, and uh, and uh, in some ways, it's a normal response to stress. And in some ways, it's um, normal in the sense that we all do it. We all fall into that trap. <laughs> but it can be abnormal in the sense it can create um, unhealthy patterns and even disease states, because when we're always in that place of defending and um, projecting and solving, um, that's just going to run out and deplete all of our organ systems, you know, cardiovascular, respiratory, hormonal, you name it. Um, so disease states often come from unresolved traumas and unresolved stress. Yeah. And I'd love to really talk about that idea of sort of trying to solve things. What makes people want to resort to thinking through things and th thinking through their problems with the goal of trying to have a solution to them? <laughs> well, um, you know, the only thing I can say about that is that it's it's just the way we've learned to do things. Like, um, like for example, a child does something uh, that, in a sense, they shouldn't be doing. Um, and the parent says, why did you do that? Um, what's going on? What's wrong with you? And so the child is forced to come up with some kind of explanation, which of course there really is none. Um, now, if a parent uh, instead um, invited the child onto her lap or his lap and said, hmm, what's going on, you know, or what, how, how are you feeling? Are you upset about something? Um, and then, you know, there might be an opportunity for some hugging and some settling. Um, that would be a very different, that would be a more embodied self-awareness. The child starts to feel, okay, I, I might have done something wrong, but I'm still loved. And I can cry now because I'm being held. And that ability to to settle and rest and come to a state of relief or peace is what I call in restorative embodied self-awareness. And it's really the pathway to 
resilience and to healing stress and trauma. And if we, and it's the things that we're doing, like thinking too hard or pushing too hard, are um, just causing us more stress and we never find that place of relief, then um, we're not going to be restored. We're not going to ever recover in a sense. Yeah, and what are the steps or stages to working towards restorative embodied self-awareness? Well, in my experience, um, you know, I've had a lifetime of wounds and slings and arrows and, you know, traumas, etc. to recover. Um, I've never been able to do it by myself because... We're just naturally built with that, those defense mechanisms that push the hard and difficult and painful things away. Um, we need, well, like the example of the child being held, <clears throat> we need that sense of being cared for and held um, and permission to really open up and heal and um as I said, feel our, our anger or um, our sadness or our grief or whatever is there because we feel safe in the company of this other caring person. And um, to me, that's central. That's the key to um, moving deeper into ourselves is the sense of safety and the sense of being held and contained. And I just, it's just never been my experience that I could do that for myself. Even even now, I mean, I still work with a therapist, even though I am a therapist. Because, you know, there's just so many things I miss, and, and I, you know, I catch myself trying to figure things out, or I get overstressed, and like help me you know yeah. I go with that instead of pushing and pushing so I know at least enough that well I need help and and that's a big step actually for a lot of people to admit that yeah. we do need help yeah for sure I feel like a lot of us think that we can do everything on our own, that we can work through all of our issues or, you know, the stress or adversity we come across in life. And I agree, it's a massive step to be able to say that you need help and that you need someone else to help you do something. Um, and I think it requires relinquishing maybe a bit of ego as well, would you say? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. That's really good observation um, because we have to kind of accept that we can't we can't figure it all out I and mean, we can't solve all of our problems and it doesn't have to be for, in my experience at least it doesn't have to be a therapist a trained therapist although for many people that's really helpful it can be a loving um, partner it can be a family member who is just willing to be present with us and listen and hold our hand and allow us to find 
what it is that's really, you know, eating at us. So it, it, it can be any other person who cares enough to really listen and to really... Um, and, and also, that other person needs to be comfortable with um, the, whatever feelings come up with a, within us as we're feeling held and we're feeling safe. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's an, a real that's a really amazing experience to be able to have as well. So I'd love to ask you how embodied self awareness therapy can help us recognize like the connection between like the body and mind when it comes to healing. Well, in um, I mean, in my work, what what I would do if I'm working with um, a client is <laughs> I have a I have a very highly attuned body sense after many years of practice. Um, many um, um, skilled or advanced therapists can also do this. Like when we're with somebody, we can feel what they're feeling. And if they're not feeling, if they're thinking, um, you know, maybe I start to think about something. So, you know, I would just, if, I, if I'm in that place when I'm with a client, I would say, are you thinking about something? What are you thinking about? Um, tell me about that. And they might start to describe, you know, oh, I had an argument with my partner or something came with my boss or I'm worried about this or that. And then I would gradually guide that person to, well, how did you feel during that argument? Um, let's go back there. Put yourself in that argument situation. Um, what was happening inside of you? Um, and, you know, it's just a process of keeping, bringing people back to themselves, bringing people back to a real life felt experience. And um, when I feel them starting to think of, again, I depending on how well I know them and how well they trust me, I might say, um, you know, I noticed that you're thinking again. What happened? That you were just feeling a minute ago and then you start to think. So what happens is that builds awareness for the client or, or a friend or whoever it is. It builds their awareness of when they kind of lose themselves in their thoughts. And that's the key to healing in my experience is the awareness. Like, can I catch myself when I, you know, start slipping out of the difficult feelings and going into my head and thinking about me? Yeah, for sure. And that's a hard thing to be able to do, to catch yourself in the middle of thinking. I feel like it's not until you've finished thinking and the damage is done and you've gone through that process of overthinking something that you've realized what you've actually just done. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, awareness is the key. So like I said um, earlier, I said something like, um, you know, we're just 
all been trained to think. And it's almost like um, we often don't even know that we're thinking because it's just in the background about our embodied state thoughts running through our head. There's something, there's a part of the brain called the default mode network. I don't know if you've ever heard of that term. But <clears throat> even when we're not like trying to solve a problem or having conversation like you and I are doing, um, that's, those kinds of things come out of something called the task positive network of the brain. Um, the, the default network arises when we're not actively trying to do something. Like we could be sitting in and out of nature somewhere and um, thoughts are running through our heads, you know, things that we did, things that we didn't do, um, things that we want to do, you know, what's coming up next. You know, it's like, like it's a stream of consciousness kind of thing. And we yeah. don't even notice that we're thinking and we're not really listening to the birds and we're not really smelling the flowers because um, one of the curiosities of the way the nervous system works um, is that whenever we are thinking either in the test positive mode or the default network mode, we can't feel ourselves. It's like either or. And when we're really feeling ourselves, like really, you know, feeling our guts crunch up or a heart expand or um, whatever the feeling is, we are no longer thinking. We can't think because those are two separate and mutually exclusive um, networks of the nervous system. Yeah. And do you have any practical techniques or exercises that you've used in embodied self-awareness that you could share with us? Um, you know, I knew you were going to ask me that question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, I've been, I've been making the point all along that you need help. Yeah. To do. So I'm a little bit skeptical about exercises okay. or practices. Like, for example, um, you know, when, when people are doing mindfulness meditation, you, you, there's always some kind of focus, like the focus on the breath or a mantra or a focus on some part of the body or something like that. And when we're, when we're focusing, um, it's it, it's effortful, and whenever there's effort, it's hard to really feel anything. It's, yeah, it's a, it, and you know it activates that doing kind of pathway, and we want to be more in a being place. You know, here's more like um, Buddhist language, and being in this, um, can we just be with the feelings that are coming up? And you know, I'll just say it again. I think that's very difficult to do by ourselves. Yeah. Like, I don't know if you've had this experience, but I certainly have. Like, I know something's bothering me, and I don't know what it is exactly. 
now I'm thinking about it and I'm worried about it. You know, I'm getting anxious about it. And then, um, you know, I I see my, um, you know, I run into my wife somewhere in the house and she sees, what, some baseball, you know, or upset about something. And um, she gives me a hug. And all of a sudden, I'm kind of melting in tears. Um, and it just, and then I, you know, I can feel my whole system start to settle um, with this sense of relief. Like, oh, finally, my God, you know, um, I'm not alone. I don't have to do this by myself. So, you know, it's kind of like that. the key to everything is being able to really drop in when the opportunity arises. And it takes a lot of practice, just like I was talking about medication, takes a lot of practice before we get to a point where we're, we're able to do that. Yeah, and I definitely can relate to that. I feel like when I get anxious or I start to overthink something, I'm very in my head and I don't know if I can get myself out of it. But as soon as I go to a friend and explain to them what's happening, the kind of reassurance they give me or just even talking through it, if even if they're not physically there, just sort of changes things in an instant and I automatically just feel calm as well. Okay. So I can definitely understand where that comes from and opening up to, you know, a, another person changes things so dramatically. Yeah, that's exactly it. That's a beautiful way to describe it. And, you know, <clears throat> you can give yourself a big, you know, pat on the back for having the wisdom um, to, you know, to realize that you need somebody to talk to or to, to be with when you're, when you're caught up and you can't, and you feel stuck and you can't get out of that. Yeah. I feel like the kind of comfort we get is really unparalleled to the kind of comfort we can give ourselves. So would you say that is what the embodied self-awareness sort of process is about? Yes. And what role does mindfulness play, you know, in building our resilience? Well, I think, you know, there's a lot of research now on the effects of mindfulness on Things like building resilience, um, settling our nervous system, uh, healing from different um, illnesses, and there's no question that it it takes us. It does do some of that for us because even if we're focusing on our breath, um, <clears throat> or at least you know getting getting out of that, those loops in our head, and giving ourselves a little space to, um, you know, to possibly settle. But unless the mindfulness eventually takes us to a place of deeper, a sense of deeper peace or relaxation, and typically that means we get to a point where we're we started out focusing, and then we we somehow kind of drop in. Well, the 
the focus disappears. We're in a state of more peacefulness or um, relaxation. And that that feeling, that felt experience of peace, relaxation, relief, that's what I call the stoipil. So anything that gets us there, and for some people maybe it's um, a yoga class and uh, resting pose that comes at the end of the yoga class. Um, although for a lot of people in that resting period, their default network network is still churning, and they're not really getting there. So, you know, I think yes, there are many practices that have the potential to get us to a restorative state. But um, the proof is the proof that we're there is when, just like you said, you feel easier after you talk to your friend. You feel. You feel a sense of, um, well, I'm okay now. I can. Yeah. But, yeah. So, if if you if you find that, it doesn't really matter what got you here. You're you're in the right place. But <clears throat> if you're doing different things, and you're not finding that sense of peace, then you're just continuing the same pattern of doing. Doing. I'm going to get to that yoga class. I've got to get put on time, and um, I'm going to do all the postures that the teacher wants me to do. And you know, you're just going to push yourself um, in the same way you had been pushing yourself all day, um, with just another task. So, in those situations, it's not going to help you very much in terms of building resilience. So we cut lengths. Yeah, for sure. And what do you think about this idea of like always turning to someone in, you know, a moment of stress or adversity? Do you think that's always healthy? Um, could you say more? What do you need? Yeah. Do you think that there are times where we should be able to work through things on our own without having to, you know, reach out to someone to help us through that? Oh, Okay, so it's the word should that catches my attention. Okay. Um, this is what the word should, like I should be able to solve this problem by myself. I should be better than I am. I shouldn't be thinner than I am. I shouldn't be um, either and get along with whatever. Um, all of those shoulds are really what. Um, keeping us away from what we may actually be in the moment, which is hopeless or really totally incompetent or, you know, the, finding the truth of what we feel. So every time we get into that place, of, we should be doing better. And here's something to do it and, you know, Tomorrow I'm going to show off. I won't make that same mistake again. Um, we're still caught up in that cycle of stress. Dying me. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does, for sure. And what about people who 
struggle to tap into mindfulness or the ability to seek out help, how can they go about finding what works for them? Um, seek help. I mean, somehow part of um, part of the process of recovery <laughs> or you know, the start of pathway of recovery toward, toward recovery. Excuse me, I need to take a drink. Okay. Is um, being willing to accept that we can't do it ourselves. And that's, an, that's also another kind of Buddhist concept is acceptance, self-forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Again, those are those are nice words, but they're and they're easy to say, but they're much harder to <laughs> actually achieve than this. Yeah, and do you have any like examples of individuals you've worked with or externally that have gone through this process and you've seen like growth or change over time? All the time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it works. I mean, just what we were talking about earlier, I mean, the practice I do rosing up that is pretty much like the example I gave of the child who crawls into her mom or dad's lap, um, or, or the example you gave of, you know, just being with a friend and feeling safe and held and listened to. That's pretty much the core of most embodiment practices is realizing that we need the kind of safety and caring for us to let down our guard to allow ourselves to be helped and to recognize that we need and so many just so many people, that's, that's just something they can't do. You know, they they just keep pushing. They, they get more and more um, distant from themselves, and they get more and more irritable, and we get maybe not, and I mean, we yell on whatever the outcomes are. Yeah, and how would you go about helping someone like that? who is just very distant from that concept and just keeps pushing things away, what would be like your first step? I can't help someone like that unless they ask for help. Mm. Unless they get to a point where they know that they can't do it by themselves. So the first step would for embodied self-awareness is reaching out? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. Amazing. And is there anything that we can, you know, cultivate in our everyday lives to help us get a step closer to being just comfortable with, you know, reaching out whenever we need and not feeling like we're going to be a burden on someone else? Um, little baby steps, like... Um, 
testing the waters with them or for some mean like would it, would it be okay if I I was a little bit more vulnerable and allowed myself to say I'm hurting or allowed myself to say to somebody I need help um, the reason that most people can't do that is because in their past life history when they did that especially as children they were rejected or they weren't offered the help they needed and so they um it created a pattern in the nervous system like i can't trust anybody i'm i'm alone in this world i'm i'm i can't reach out for help um i mentioned earlier that that um Korean series called Chuckle. Mm. And it really does a wonderful job of showing how difficult it was for these two main characters to um, let their guard down, to to reach out, to accept um, affection. You know, a lot of episodes where thing, difficult things would come up and one of them would walk away or Go silent. The other woman goes silent. Or, um, Ellie. Strangely enough, you know, I think that that's really real. That's real. Really, what happens? Yeah. That's how relationships get into trouble too. When we don't feel like we can trust or open up. Yeah, for sure. And you mentioned before like childhood and it made me think about this idea of childhood trauma and do you think that informs a lot of our behaviors like when we're older um if you mean by inform um that it sets a pattern in our embodied self of avoidance of other yeah. people who are inability to trust um, yet. Um, but it could also mean um, a whole thought pattern. Um, I'm not good enough, but I can't get help. I'm in this alone. You know, all of those kinds of ruminative, we call them ruminative thoughts, like um, they keep us kind of trapped in that loneliness place where we can't reach out. Yeah, for sure. And would you say that that's why reaching out for help is important as well? For example, um, like getting help from a therapist who can help you build the awareness that you do have maybe some childhood trauma that you're dealing with and bring about that awareness of, you know, your weaknesses and how you can work out of them. Yeah. Um, as long as it's done in a way that um, is non-judgmental. Um, so if we feel like our therapist is, is judging us in some way, and, and that feels, that's going to feel so much like how we were judged when we were younger, um, then that's not the right therapist for you. Yeah. You have to be with a therapist who accepts you exactly as you are with all your faults 
and is just willing to begin to gently point them out to you without judgment. Like I was saying earlier, um, notice that you just gone a little more irritable. What would happen? That's a very neutral statement. Yeah. Not a, that a judgmental statement would be, there you go again, getting irritable. Um, you know, that's really hard to take. So um, if you're with another person, a therapist or anybody else who's, you start feeling that way, like they're judging me, then I'm not the best person for you to be around, at least until you get to a point where you're resilient enough to say something back. Bali, like what you just said of me, um, which is also a non-judgmental statement, rather than you're so judgmental. Can't you just leave me alone? So, again, that's that's another that's a judgment coming back in the gut. So yeah. those are just unproductive moves. For sure, and it seems like a process to get to a point where you've found someone that you can trust and that you feel comfortable sharing things with and you know that they'll accept what you're saying. So it seems like a hard process, but something that's rewarding when you do find it. Yeah. But again, I, I have to say that so many people have been hurt so badly, you know, with abuse or, or constant judgment, whatever that <clears throat> It's really difficult for them to take those first steps of reaching out and yeah. beginning to trust that there's another human being that could actually see them as they are and accept them as they are. Yeah, I agree. I feel like even if we do find that person, sometimes it can be so hard to believe and then we might start to doubt if we deserve it or if it's even real. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you for sharing those with us. I'd love to move into our practice and ha um, habits experiment debrief section. So I'm basically just going to ask you your approach to this. So is there a practice that you use to cultivate self-awareness? Um, yeah. I mean, I think I've already talked a little bit about that. I mean, I I know how to reach out to people. I know how to find comfort with the right people. I know how to kind of let go and sink in, feel what I'm feeling, just because I practice it so much and I've worked with so many people. Um, if there's nobody around, I can do a little bit of that for myself, but um, a lot of what comes up for me is going back to thinking. Like, well, um, it's hard for me personally to really get to a place where I can just cry about something all by myself. Um, and crying brings such relief and such 
when you know, deep contentment and peace and safety. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that's... For me, it's about cultivating relationships and learning to trust relationships. Yeah. It seems like you have to be very secure in your own vulnerability as well in being okay with being vulnerable. Yeah. Um, something, you know, I heard, I, I heard from my teachers and I tell my clients, we thought, at first, vulnerability seems like a weakness. Yeah. Oh, I have to go depend on somebody, and I, I'm supposed to be doing this myself. I can do this up. But actually, if vulnerability is a strength. For sure, and I feel like there is this deep stigma surrounding vulnerability and, you know, sort of accepting that you can't do everything for yourself. Like yeah. a lot of people avoid that because they associate that to being weak and being labeled as someone who is weak. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And how do you find time in your life to practice this? Or is it something that just happens whenever you feel like you need it? Yeah. Well, I'm fortunate to have uh, a loving partner and I'm fortunate to have um caring friends um, I get so much out of my therapeutic practice um, both receiving therapy and, and giving therapy so um, you know I've just created a life where I have all those sources of support because I know for me and for many people that's the key to resilience. It's not not being able to just ride through everything and figure it out, but to actually not only like can we back they know they need to get that massage. They know they need to get the physical therapy. They know when they have an injury they have to take care of it. It's it's the same kind of process of knowing what you need and what your body needs to really come to a place of healing or rest or restoration. Yeah, for sure. And I feel like that's such a beautiful thing to realize that you have all the tools you need in your life to be, you know, like abundant or joyful and feel safe and secure. Yeah. I have to admit, I think that um, getting older it's been a big part of the process, you know. I'm not, I'm not as intense as I used to be. Um, I'm not as, um, I don't push myself as hard. I know my limits better. I can accept myself for, you know, what I can't do. Mm-hmm. Admit that I need help or support. And, and there's something... Not every, not all older people have gotten to that point, but I feel that um, a lot of that kind of wisdom comes with age. Yeah, that's amazing. And how have you felt that this has impacted your resilience and you know perception in life? You know, I've lived through a, a, a number of different illnesses. I have 
Oh, you, you know, hereditary heart disease, for example. Um, um, I thought work surgery is um, um, even a heart attack. Um, giving myself the opportunity to get the care I need um, and go through the, the recovery process. I give myself all the time I need to heal both physically and emotionally. And um, I have to say, if I'm really being honest, that those surgeries, all surgeries, even dental surgery, has an element of trauma. And I think I'm, I'm, I still feel that from those very invasive open heart surgeries. Yeah. And, um, what can I do about that? You know, I just have to find the help I need to, you know, to deal with the trauma, to um, work with the emotions, to boost my physical stamina, and all of those things. So, I don't know if that answers your question, but. Um, yeah, it's about knowing what you need, what you need to take care of yourself. But yeah. I, I didn't say that right. Um, because that means that the burden is on you to take care of yourself. I'm not um, knowing what you need to um, continue sometimes a very long process of recovery. Bonnie. Yeah. I feel like that makes a lot of sense because that entire process is resilience. So thank you for sharing that with us. Um, would you recommend this practice to everyone? Like, is this something that everyone can do? Uh, you know, I mean, really, like I said, uh, many people are, are so stuck or have been so wounded um, that they can't get the help that they need. They, they find it. They just don't even want to go there. Um, so, is it for everyone? I mean, yes, in theory, everyone could benefit by um, working with their trauma, feeling their emotions, um, Sensing into their bodies, um, accepting, forgiving, all of those things. Of course, but not everybody can. Yeah. Definitely, and I, f I think that's also an important thing to get out there, that everyone can do it, but only if they're willing to put themselves through that process as well. So it takes a lot of self-awareness, I guess, to even get to that point. Yeah, I think it also takes at least one loving relationship. Where yeah. maybe for the first time in a person's life, they actually feel cared for or supported. Supported. Um, <clears throat> maybe they never ever have that experience in a way that they could um, let another person in to himself bottom. So sometimes, you know, serendipity, you know, like 
love kind of sneaks up on us and maybe catches us a little bit by surprise. And again, you know, coming back to that um, Korean series called Chocolate, um, you know, that's eventually what happened is that, you know, love conquers all. But um, I love the uh, series because it showed just how difficult it was for those two characters to allow themselves to, to be loved and to give love. Yeah, I think that it's really great you mentioned this idea of love and like having that even just one really loving relationship can really change everything because from the outside you might not see it but when you're in that situation you can really see the transformation and how beneficial having that relationship is for you in your life well amazing and just moving on I'd love to get into our open mic section now so um, I'll open up the floor for you to talk about anything that you would like to. It could be about this topic or it could be about anything that you'd like. Well, of course, I'm really passionate about this whole field of embodied self-awareness. Um, yeah. Because I think as a society, we're, you know, just as I said before, we're so in our heads and we're so dependent on thinking our ways and things. But um, I think one of the one of the ways to grow and to find the sense of peace is to find something that gives you some kind of pleasure or some sort of sense of creativity or belonging. Um, my one of the things I've come to love as an older is gardening. Oh, really? I just love tending to all the different trees and plants and flowers and seeing them, you know, grow and change um, and, you know, go through the seasons in different ways. And, you know, it gives me a lot of pleasure to create a beautiful natural space I find that your story. It's different than, um, well, I've got to go out and mow the lawn, and it's a chore, and, you know, I've got to pull those weeds, and I don't like doing that. And I mean, again, I think it has something to do with being older and being mostly retired, I have the time to just make it like a, a Zen kind of practice, you know, that's meditative, yeah. it's calming. Um, I don't see it as a chore. I see it as um, life-giving somehow and creating life. And so, um, or I live near some wonderful, I get mountains, I mean, being able to go out there and take walks or uh, be in the snow in the winter or whatever it is, those, those things give me a lot of a sense of peace and pleasure. Yeah, I think sometimes we can underestimate the power of just finding one thing you really enjoyed like doing. For me, <laughs> that could be, you know, 
spending time with a friend or engaging in like a physical activity and like the kind of serotonin and just pure yeah. joy and like sense of peace and accomplishment that you feel from doing that can really fill your cup and make you feel really great about yourself. Yeah, or it could be dancing or singing. Or, yeah. You know, going to parties or whatever. Um, again, what's important is that it, it's not like, like a person could go to a party and be so obsessed with how they look and how they come across and what they say. And um, that's not helpful. If you're going to a party and, you know, you know, you drop all that pretension and you're just being with people and sharing and having fun and, you, you know, letting loose, then that's restorative. Yeah, so for sure. It isn't as if there's, like I said, with gardening, you know, I can either be a chore or a pleasure. So it's like how you approach things that make make the difference yeah and I love how you mentioned dropping that pretension I feel like that's a big one and that sometimes inhibits us from truly embracing something and it's a very important thing to do and I've personally found when I drop that sort of facade I enjoy things a lot more and I'm able to just be in that moment without you know having this superficial like need to get something out of it that's not other than just pure like contentment and joy. Yeah, exactly. You really get this. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I've I've been trying. Um, but that also brings us to the end of today's episode. So thank you so much for joining us and so well sharing done. everything with us. It's been really informative, and I feel like it's such an introspective sort of process, like yeah. this idea of embodied self awareness. Well, thank you. I was glad to be here and I enjoy um, all of your insights and questions. Thank you. And for those of us who want to find out a bit more about you, where can we go? You can go to my website, um, which it's kind of a long address. So, but if you just look up, um, just put my name in Google, Alan Fogel, and you'll find it. Perfect. Well, we've also got um, all of Alan's details in the description below. But to everyone listening, please don't forget to like and subscribe on whatever platform you're on. And we'll see you guys next time. You have been listening to Bouncing Back, the personal resilience science insights podcast produced by the Life Management Science Labs. Listen to episodes from LMSL's 10 Life Management Perspectives on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube or other podcasting apps on your smartphone. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it and subscribing to our channel as it helps other people find it and us grow to bring you more quality resources. More of our work can be found on our website, pr.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Joanna. Thanks for tuning in.